We first met this man, Clyde Thompson, back in episode 12 of this season, the Santa Bandits episodes. He brushed up with Marshall Ratliff while waiting to see if he could get his death sentence commuted to life in prison. This was when Marshall attempted an escape from the small Eastland jail in Texas. Clyde Thompson was only 17 years old at the time and was then the youngest man to be convicted of a death penalty. Spoiler alert, he was not sentenced to death at age 17. But a long and bumpy life brings about a surprise twist ending that I can't wait to share. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Clyde Thompson himself opens up this story with words of warning. He says, quote, If you are in the wrong place at the right time, you could be in serious trouble, and it could take you a whole lifetime to get out of it, if you ever could. End quote. I couldn't find much information on his mother, but his father was an itinerant pastor, and they were on the poor side. He had an older brother and a younger one, but I didn't find out a lot about his younger life. I do know that he was born in Guymon, Oklahoma, and his family moved about looking for work before settling in Lee Ray, Texas. It was here he started school, but he would only make it to the fourth grade. He was eight years old when he started, but because of the moving here and there, his education was spotty at best. So it's no surprise that by 14 years old, he could barely read. So he pretty much gave up. But his real trouble began when he was 17 years old. His father would recall that Clyde was honest to a fault. He was a good boy, but when he got himself backed into a corner, he wasn't afraid to fight. His father, being a preacher, never really thought to teach his boys the way of being a good Christian. In fact, he felt that his youngest would be the one to follow in his footsteps. Spoiler alert, he didn't. On an evening in September of 1928, Clyde thought he was out on a hunting trip with a couple of his friends in the area. Thomas Davis, who was also 17, and his younger brother Woodrow Davis, who was 13. Now, depending on who is telling the story, either the three boys came across the Shook brothers Lucian, who was 26, and Leon, who was 21, and home for a college break. Or, Thomas Davis felt Lucian had made unacceptable comments about his sister, so he lured the brothers out into the woods. Somehow, someway, the five ended up in an opening in the woods, and a fight ensued. Clyde was knocked to the ground, and one of the Shook boys was lunging for him, so he pointed his pistol and fired. The young man stumbled back and fell to the ground. Clyde heard another shot fired, and Thomas came back, claiming the other one was dead. The man at their feet was still breathing, and so, according to one story, Thomas made his brother finish off the dying man so they could all be culpable and no one would turn on the others. Clyde was guilt-ridden, but kept the pact. A little less than a week later, the decomposing bodies of Lucian and Leon were found buried in shallow graves. 
the police went to interview the Davis brothers, and they pointed the finger directly at Clyde. Clyde admitted to shooting one of the men. When he was taken to the police station, a confession statement was written up based on the 13-year-old's testimony. Clyde, not being able to read and feeling the weight of taking a man's life, signed the unread confession. At the trial, the Thompsons couldn't afford an attorney the way that the Davises could. Woodrow Davis avoided jail time if he would testify, and boy did he. He would admit to being there and seeing the whole thing, but claimed that Clyde said he shot the Shook brothers, quote, just to see them kick, end quote. On October 16th, Clyde Thompson was given the death sentence. He would be the youngest person in Texas history to be put on death row at that time. Clyde would recall, quote, I was sentenced to death twice in the same murder case within a year's time. The first sentence was reversed. I was again tried and sentenced a second time. A month after my trial, the 18-year-old boy was tried and sentenced to death also. After I had received the death sentence the second time, his case was reversed after about 20 months. And two years after his first trial, he was tried again in the same case and received a five-year suspended sentence. You know, this is the difference in what money can do. My folks had no money. I went to death row while this young man was still waiting trial in a second murder case, end quote. While Clyde was waiting for his appeals trial, this was when he was at Eastland Prison and had his run-in with the Santa Bandit himself, Marshall Ratliff. And if you haven't heard that story, be sure to go back a few episodes and take a listen. The appeal failed, and he was sent back to Huntsville Prison in March of 1931. By the time he turned 19 on death row, he had only 60 days left to live. With death being so near and gospel music and preaching being played down the hall on death row, Clyde asked the pastor to come and baptize him, and he did. His father was there to witness the event and brought his son a Bible to study. Six days left. His life was ticking away. But with the Thomas Davis case being so lightly punished, remember he only got a five-year suspended sentence, the governor said he didn't feel justice was being served in letting one man die when two were equally guilty. Clyde Thomas was given a stay of execution. His clock got wound back up to 90 more days. Clyde did his best to read the Bible and get his heart right in the remaining days. The warden came in and took him for his last bath and shave and took his order for his last meal. His execution was now only hours away. He turned down his last meal saying, quote, I didn't have any stomach for it, end quote. And then, six hours before walking through that one-way door, Governor Ross Sterling decided that his sentence of death should be commuted to a life in prison. Clyde would say, quote, They took me off death row, and for a year I lived as faithful to my Lord as I could in prison, end quote. Clyde was sent to a work farm called Retrieve Farm. This was a hard labor farm out in the sun from the moment it came up until long after it went down. They would work seven days a week for seven or eight weeks stints before having a day off to rest. Clyde would say they didn't even have time to wash their socks. 
He'd also add, quote, We would come in so tired at night that we would just fall in bed and not even remember that we had come into the building or whether or not we went to supper. We would just fall exhausted, and then the next morning we were up and at it again. End quote. The men were tired and hungry, and tempers could easily flare up. Clyde found that he wouldn't back down from any fight that came to him. He'd say, quote, I lost my faith completely. I didn't believe that there could be a God who was merciful and let these things happen to me. End quote. Clyde was determined to escape from prison. He was always thinking and plotting ways to get out. He'd say, quote, I felt that if I was going to spend my life in prison, it was going to be a very short one, and I would make them kill me or I would get away, end quote. On his first attempt, he and two others attempted to make a run for it. One of the other men, Tommy Reese, apparently tipped off the guard, and within moments, the man next to him was shot and killed, and another one was shot and wounded. The guard riding a horse came within 30 feet of Clyde and threatened to shoot if Clyde did not stop in his tracks. He may have stopped running, but it was then he noticed that his friend was alive and he ducked down to tend to him. The guard fired his shotgun and blew the hat from Clyde's head. He remembers, quote, I had a high-crowned hat on and he shot it off with a load of buckshot. Had his intentions been carried out, I would not be here, end quote. He knelt by his friend and promised to avenge his death by killing Tommy Reese, the man who foiled their plan. Good to his word, Clyde caught Tommy alone and stabbed him seven times with a homemade shank. For this prison murder, Clyde received a second life sentence. As far as Clyde was concerned, his death count was at four. He may have taken the lives of two of those men, but he claims the lives of the other two as well. He was definitely not the same man that came in. His father came to visit him once while he was at Retrieve Farm. Clyde brought the Bible his father had given him and tossed it back. He told his father that he didn't believe a word that was in it and he was not going to try and live that kind of life anymore. It had no place in prison, he said. He admits to knowing how much it hurt his father to hear those words, but Clyde was done with God. It would be the last time he would see his father. His father died at the young age of 53 from cancer in 1938. In July of 1935, another man, Everett Melvin, lost his life at the hands of Clyde Thompson. He had attempted to rape him, and Clyde didn't hesitate. He, too, was shanked to death. The prosecutor pushed for the death penalty, but for some reason, the judge just added another life sentence onto his other two. The newspapers and the radio broadcast got a hold of his stories, and pretty soon Clyde Thompson became known as the meanest man in Texas. However the judge may feel about things, the prison guards felt they needed to take matters into their own hands. They realized that Clyde Thompson was a man that was not afraid of death. So, in 1936, they sent him to a place dubbed Little Alcatraz, because it was reserved for the most dangerous, and no one escapes. This was also a work farm, but it had fewer inmates and more guards. There were only about 25 total inmates, and there were never less than two guards watching over them as they worked these long, long hours in the fields. But apparently, to Clyde, this just sounded like a challenge. October 3rd, 
1937. Clyde, Austin Avers, Forrest Gibson, and Roy Thornton attempted a jailbreak. Clyde would say, quote, The four of us plotted and planned to take the arsenal and give guns to everyone who would shoot one. We hoped to kill anyone who got in our way as we escaped from that penitentiary. I had fallen so far that I would have killed every official and every inmate in that institution to escape from it. I was determined to get out of prison, end quote. Being a place called Little Alcatraz, they didn't get very far. Even with the capture of two guards who they intended to use as shields and having their pistols as weapons, the other guards were waiting for them. When the door opened to the outside, shots rang out immediately. Clyde was shot in the shoulder with a thirty thirty slug. The three others who went out that door were shot dead. Side note, in case the name Roy Thornton rings a bell, you might have heard it from all the way back to episodes 44 and 45 in season 1. The Bonnie and Clyde you may not know. Roy Thornton was Bonnie Parker's husband, to whom she was still married when she died. Needless to say, Clyde was recaptured and sent to the hospital for 40 days to treat his bullet wound. He would complain that he couldn't even raise his left arm, but they would send him out into the fields anyway to work with his one good hand. He'd recall, quote, All three of those men who went up those stairs with me died, and it's just amazing that I didn't, end quote. Being the meanest man in Texas is a tough gig to keep up with. So when, about six months after the failed jailbreak, an inmate was discovered stabbed to death, it was assumed that Clyde was their man. Even though he said he was innocent of this crime, they weren't buying it. Once again, the prosecutors pushed for the death penalty. But this time, there weren't any witnesses that would testify. So, they just increased his punishment. Quote, the officials at the penitentiary finally gave up on me. End quote. Clyde would tell the story of how guards refused to take any more chances with him. They took him out to the back end of the farm where a small building stood between two taller buildings. It used to be an old morgue. It was made of solid concrete and had concrete slabs inside where they placed the caskets. A steel door was added with a foot square cut out of it to allow fresh air and just the tiniest bit of blue sky to be seen. He'd recall, quote, All the light I had came through those bars. The small cell was sandwiched between two small buildings and about five hours a day was the only time I could see my hand before me, end quote. They stripped him down to his shorts and tossed him inside. He was given one meal a day and a pail. No running water, no electric, no sheets or bedding, not even utensils to use for his one meal. His death toll, in his mind, was up to eight. Eight people are in their graves because I have lived, he would say. Quote, people who probably would be alive if I had not gotten them into trouble or killed them with my own hands, end quote. Alone in his concrete box, he walked back and forth to pass the time, left alone with his thoughts. After three or four months, he asked the guard if he would bring him something to read. The warden gave him permission to have the Bible. More specifically, the New Testament with Psalms. He wasn't even mad. He just wanted something, anything to break up the monotony. He was angry at the world, at God, and at the Bible and decided to prove the whole system was wrong. 
Quote, Somewhere I'd heard that the Bible was a book of contradictions and so could not be the word of God. Having nothing better to do, I decided that I could prove that. So I started studying to prove the Bible was a book of contradictions. End quote. He struggled with the heavy and intimidating words from the King James Version. But it's not like he had anything else to do. Soon, he taught himself how to read. But something went terribly wrong. The more he read it and researched it, he found that it touched his heart. Quote, The more I studied it, the more it convinced me that it was a book of truth and I was false. End quote. He poured himself into his one soul book and eventually got down on his knees. He says, quote, repented in tears day and night for months, end quote. Soon, they trusted him enough to have a pencil and paper, so he began writing articles, and they were being sent off and published. The guard started allowing him to leave his concrete box once a week to bathe and shave. Along the way, he was miraculously allowed to talk with other inmates and pray for them. He was turning people to Christ with every chance he got. He was such an avid student that they allowed him to take classes, and he eventually graduated from a two-year Bible course from Lee College and a journalism college. He'd recall, quote, I had turned back to the Lord and I didn't care any more about my freedom. I already had changed my attitude toward man, and it wasn't too hard to get this hatred of people out of my heart, end quote. He did say that he struggled with his cursing. He had a tough time giving that up as he talked to the inmates. He'd say they would pop into his mind, but he's not letting them come out of his mouth. Quote, I thank God that he brought me to a sense of understanding that I couldn't save myself. End quote. In 1944, Clyde Thompson was allowed to come back among the other inmates at Ramsey Farm. He would create a Bible class for anyone who wanted to join, and before he left there, he would claim to have baptized 60 out of the 81 men who chose to learn about the Bible with him. Around Christmas in 1946, a pastor of a small church who had been visiting with Clyde and assisting him on his Christian journey had come back to his own congregation and requested that anyone who might be interested to please send a card to his friend behind bars. There was only one person who complied. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it.
Miss Julia Perryman of Meridian, Texas, would be that one person to send off a Christmas card to Clyde Thompson, and soon a correspondence began. After a year of writing back and forth to one another, Julia defied her parents and convinced the pastor of her church to take her with him to visit the meanest man in Texas, in person. She was a little afraid to meet Clyde, but not because he was locked away for three life sentences. She had suffered from scoliosis, and the curvature of her spine caused her to lean a bit to one side and have a rounded back. She was afraid he wouldn't be able to accept her because of her outward appearance. He would write to her, quote, Some of the most beautiful people I've ever met were in handicapped bodies. End quote. Shocking her parents once again, she accepted the proposal of marriage from Clyde Thompson. From that moment on, she was relentless with her correspondence to public officials and even made an appearance to speak directly with the Texas Department of Corrections at the time, urging her fiancé's release from prison. Mr. O.B. Ellis took the meeting and listened to what Julia had to say, but then offered his words of advice. He said, quote, Young lady, you might as well go on and forget this fellow. He'll never get out of prison. End quote. Clyde adds, quote, Well, that was the opinion of most of the officials down there and most of the inmates. And me too. I just thought there wasn't much hope of getting out of there. End quote. In 1949, he was eligible for his first parole hearing. It was denied. In 1951, he was removed from the close confinement and was allowed to go back to Ramsey Farm. And then on November 1st, 1955, to the great shock of many, Clyde Thompson, the meanest man in Texas, was awarded parole. Clyde would smile and say, quote, All of those people underestimated the power of God and the influence of a good woman. End quote. He and Julia were married five days later. She met him at the prison with a suit of clothes, a real suit, a borrowed shirt, and a necktie. He'd say, quote, I had never owned a suit of clothes and I had never even worn a necktie. End quote. This simple gesture of having a new suit of clothes to wear had such an impact on Clyde that it would affect his newly found freedom for years to come. After getting married, he went straight to work doing what he felt called to do. He would meet inmates who were recently released from prison and invite them to his home. They would provide him with a home-cooked meal and a new suit of clothes so he could face the world with confidence. The clothes make the man, so they say, and just a simple outfit would give these men something to wear to a job interview and give them a leg up out in the world. A simple suit of clothing would give the men hope. Thompson would continue to go into the prison as often as he would be allowed to preach and offer salvation through God's word and baptism. But, apparently, he was too good at his new calling that he was eventually asked not to return. He would say, quote, There are too many of them wanting to be baptized, and the denominational chaplains and the manager of the prison did not want those people baptized. It was all right to teach them and encourage them to live right, but not to baptize them. The devil is pretty smart. As long as he can keep a person from being saved, he is real happy. 
and he has a lot of people working for him in this world today. End quote. But tireless in his new duty to preach the gospel, he worked for two years at Southwestern Christian College and also served as a pastor wherever someone would let him preach. Eventually, in 1960, Clyde and Julia moved to New Mexico to work with a Navajo children's home in Gallup, where they adopted a Navajo baby girl, and they named her Shirley Ann. He wrote a book about his life and transformation called The Life Story of Clyde Thomas, X-83. 83 was his execution number. I tried, but I could not get my hands on this book. But Don Umphrey wrote a biography which was later turned into the movie, both titled The Meanest Man in Texas. Umphrey, who became friends with Clyde and Julia through their service to inmates, would say, quote, I wanted to tell 10 million people that no matter how low you get in your life, God will help you, end quote. And then when director Justin Ward read the book, he was compelled to move forward with a movie version. He'd say, quote, when I got the book, the first thing I said was, I have to make this story. I'm a strong believer that when you make a biopic, you stick as close to the true story as you can. So I wanted nothing more than their blessing, end quote. Justin Ward would cast his son, Matthias, as the lead role. I saw the movie, and I thought he did a fantastic job. It was actually very well cast throughout. Matthias would comment about his role, quote, I'm all about redemption stories, so for me, this was an incredible essay on that. Clyde is a perfect example that there is always a bit of humanity in people, even if it's just a sliver, and when you're surrounded by the right people, it will come out, end quote. To sum up the movie, he says, quote, It's very much about the two of them. The meanest man in Texas is really about the nicest woman in Texas as well, end quote. The film has received positive feedback, winning 19 awards for acting, directing, and writing. Thompson's family also approved, and even said Mateus and Bard showed exactly how Thompson and Perryman lived. Shirley Roberts, the Thompson's daughter, would say, quote, Our family will be forever grateful for them and for giving that kind of reality to the audience to really see their heart and compassion for the world, end quote. <sighs> Oh, sorry. I got a little sidetracked there. But if you'd like to watch the movie, I'll add the YouTube link in the show notes. It really shows you a bit more of Julia's life than I could add here. Anyway, after New Mexico, the couple returned to Huntsville, Texas. Here, Clyde ran the Prisoner's Reorientation Center. Bob Mize from the Gospel Advocate wrote, quote, that chapter of his life began in November of 1955 when he himself was released from a Texas Department of Corrections after 28 years and two months confinement. His dream was then to return and help those who were coming out into the free world like himself. The specific fulfillment of that dream began in 1970 when he and his family began working at the Prisoner Reorientation Center in Huntsville. During that seven years, over 1,600 were brought to Christ and hundreds more restored to their first love, end quote. In 1977, they moved to Lubbock, Texas, with the hope that it would help Julia's respiratory issues. Clyde would serve as the prison chaplain for the Lubbock County Jail until his death in 1979. 
Bob Myers again from the Gospel Advocate wrote, quote, His death was unexpected and sudden. He was hospitalized on Monday night for severe back pains, and after a restless night and early morning, he died of cardiac arrest at about 10.30 a.m. A post-mortem revealed that he had severe bone malignancy and he could not have lived over six more months. End quote. Clyde would write years earlier, quote, I think that my life is a testimony to the fact that a person who has committed murder can be saved. I committed murder, and there are a lot of people saved in this world today because I have lived in it. End quote. Justin Ward, director of The Meanest Man in Texas film, would add, quote, I believe that society tries to put you in a box. Clyde is a killer, and that's all you hear and you start to believe it, and then he starts to believe it. There's so much more depth, and Clyde and Julia had so much faith that it was a powerful statement about don't worry about what the world says you are, end quote. See, I told you, what a twist, and what a nice interesting break from our usual dark and sinister topics. I will let Clyde himself have the final words. He would write, quote, When people have committed great sins, they sometimes feel that God cannot forgive them, and therefore they are fearful before God. But when they come to realize that the blood of Christ is all-sufficient and can wipe away the guilt of sin, then they commit their lives to Christ, and no longer do they fear and tremble. They have put their trust where it ought to be, and they know that God can and will deliver them from the power of darkness. End quote. He used his poor choices in life to prove this, and made the changes in his new life to reflect those new choices. I guess you really are only one choice away from a completely different life. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. If you'd like to join us behind the scenes, come and hang out in our Patreon group. It's only a few dollars to join in, and I promise you that every little bit helps to keep Bag of Bones posting every week. On top of my most sincere gratitude and appreciation, you get lots of goodies on the inside. I can't help myself, and I must say, we have the coolest merch available. Hopefully soon we'll be extending some of the merch selections to the public, but Patreon members always get the first glimpse and discounts. We'd love to have you join us. I'll add the link in the show notes, but if you're driving, it's as simple as going to patreon.com and then looking for Bag of Bones podcast. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. I will see you on the inside. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret. Edited by Katie Bougeret Caldwell. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones Podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. <laughs>